Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of One Vision. Arun, Brad, and myself are back together today. There is so much that's been going on for the last two weeks. We want to do a quick run through on some good news for the industry, as well as some interesting development with regards to tech companies and fintech. And then we'll end with what we are all thankful for, for this Thanksgiving holiday. So first, let's start with the good news. Starling Bank became the first challenger bank to make a profit. Congratulations, Anne. That is an amazing, amazing, amazing development, especially given with all the fintech startups that we often talk about. They are all running after how many users they have, quote unquote users, or how much money they've spent on ad and everything else, and they're all running a loss. So kudos to Anne and her team. Yeah, um, it's it's amazing because uh, we've been we've been talking about uh, profitability versus growth over the last couple of years um, with the crazy amounts of money going into fintech, um, and of course, Styling has stood out in its approach in their approach to uh, doing business and and making sure they they first cracking the viability of the business model uh, um, alongside going for growth. Um, so I'm very glad for Anne and and the team. Um, and of course, it's 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 uh, it's an inspiring story as well, as we all know with with the, the book uh, that Anne has now released, um, the, the banking on it. So uh, it's it's great, and and the same story comes with uh, pension bees as well. Um, uh, we understand uh, it's led by a female founder as well, and uh, it's 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 great when when um, uh, women led startups uh, do so well. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, having seen Anne the last several years speak about, you know, the significance of Starling in the space, I think it's is important to note that, you know, as a former banker and someone who has been in this industry for decades, is really the one to look up to. You know, it's 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 not that she's a woman, she's a leader in this space. And I think, you know, she has brought a very, very different um sort of upbringing of Starling. You know, I heard a good friend recently say that Starling is my darling. And the reason for that is because that it's truly, truly the neobank to watch. Because, you know, it's not just profitability. It's the way that she runs the entire ship. And, you know, there are, are neobanks that have more money, that raise more money, that are in more countries, that may have more customers. But, you know, some of those, Revolut and 26 and others, Monzo, they don't, have a profit and they run a lot differently. So, you know, hats off to Anne and the whole team. So uh, just, just fantastic to see. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I love about how she's running the bank, she had sad quotes and quotes. We don't offer jazzy metal carts. And we don't offer perks such as access to premium airport lounges. They just do what the market needs and they offer it to them. And, and it's so different than, you know, I know we, we make fun of a lot of the fintechs out there and they all look the same and they all do the same thing and they all have these beautiful flashy cards. But then what else, right? What are they exactly doing for their customers? So this is, this is super nice. And then back to um, Arun's point on Pension B. 
Congratulations to Romy Savoa. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, as you guys who have been listening to our show, we are adamant about giving people's name, not just referring to them as a female banker or a woman thought leader. Um, so, or just she lately, because apparently my name is called she. So um, kudos to, to all the wonderful leaders um, who are doing amazing jobs. Now back to news, there has been a few developments going on. Um, obviously the biggest one this week is Google, Google Play, Google Plex, um, and the partnership they have with 11 banks, um, Citibank included as one of them, to be offering a money app or a big PFM tool for customers. So Brett, what's your take on that? I'm still trying to, to understand what's in it for some of these big banks. What, why do they want to do this with Google? Well, I mean, it's, it's just another acquisition tool for a bank. And I think some, some of these banks are going to learn quite a bit from it. I'm actually most interested in how Stanford Federal Credit Union, um, which is likely the credit union serving Google, uh, got into this mix. Um, a lot of people don't know Stanford Federal Credit Union, but it's been around for decades. It was the first financial institution to offer mobile banking in the world. To put that in perspective, they did it uh, through multiple channels back starting in the 80s. Uh, so when you think about you know why that's on the list and why there's a couple other credit unions on the list, I, I tweeted out yesterday, I said, you know, I wish that Google had looked at offering this up to any community financial institution because the cost of acquisition um, is going to be near zero. It's going to be a click. We're going to do an OAuth through Google, and you're going to all of a sudden have the ability to aggregate through Plaid just about you know, every financial institution in addition to acquiring customers this way. I think what's really interesting in this play is that it's really about Google doing two things. One, it's trying to make its wallet happen. Uh, it, its wallet compared to others hasn't really arrived. They've tried to launch it three or four times and to no avail. Um, I barely use any wallet other than Apple Pay. Uh, and I know, you know, when you travel through Asia, you've got two big choices and those are the obvious ones, but in the US, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't use anything but Apple Pay, and I've never used Google Pay. So they're trying to make Fetch a thing. Um, if uh, they, they do this, they're going to get two things. One, they're bringing aggregation in terms of uh, aggregation and insights, or at least limited insights about what you spend, into the mainstream. Because I, I, I don't think that there are as many people that use fintech apps especially in the US um, compared to what we think. And I like to call them FinTech virgins. So there'll be a lot of diverging uh, as part of the Plex uh, process through Google. Arun, what do you think about that FinTech virgins and everything else we've been talking about? Um, this, uh, this development with, um, with Plex, uh, it feels like uh, some kind of inspiration has been drawn from the East um, with, with, the, with the wallets. Uh, which which are quite common both in China and in and and in India, um, so it's it's not anything really innovative, and I personally think they're going to struggle to make any inroads with this with this. Um, what uh, what I do understand and, and I agree with is that the tech fins or the or the fangs of the world, um, as and when they enter into the financial services space at least for the foreseeable future, they probably are gonna to stick to the distribution game and allow the banks to be banks 
um, and do the, all the all the all the financial uh, product side of things, but they'll probably just give them access to two things: their distribution network or the consumer base, um, and data. So those are the two big things that um, FANGs have that the banks don't have as as much, or at least they don't have the ability to do anything with it. So uh, and then we have seen that with the uh, tie-ups between Barclays and um, um, Amazon as well. Uh, with uh, 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 with again, I think the similar kind of strategy where Amazon will be uh, the distribution network and uh, um, and Barclays will will be the financial services uh, partner there. Um, getting getting access to Amazon's distribution network and the data, the transaction data that happens, the the richness of the data is going to provide some amazing insights for Barclays to be much more ef- efficient with its be it lending or or kind of even the consumer. Um, acquisition, cross-product selling, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so I think uh, that's we are going to see that trend continue in 2021 as well. So it's uh, it's I don't see it's new, but uh, it's it's good to see at least people are trying uh, to do different things, especially in in the US uh, for Google Pay to to do something like that against Apple is is interesting. Will be it's an interesting experiment, I'm sure, from their perspective as well. The the one thing that I noticed in this Barclay card um, announcement with Amazon is that they're kind of doing a, a buy now pay later, you know, sort of um, checkout process. And you know, I, I I think that there's something really really interesting here in terms in terms of a pivot going on between technology and banking players. Um, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, everybody's trying to understand how they could be part of what has happened in Asia over the last decade, and they're trying to play catch up. What I, I think is different about these markets is that the technology players that are so prevalent in our lives have never really done finance or banking um, really, really well. Sure, you know Amazon and others have done a really good job of financing loans as part of their ecosystem, but what they haven't done is leveraged financial transaction data and leveraged um, this whole sort of subset of our lives as well as they could. So you've got great players in, in Tencent, Ant Group, and others in, in Asia doing this on a day-to-day basis, but we don't see that in the West. And I think this is the start of that. So you know they know that that there's so much value in this information of how we bank from day to day, and this is just the beginning. But you know, like Facebook's foray four or five times now into finance, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, like you said, Arun, I think it's really, really a slow burn here because they don't control the entire ecosystem. I question that too on on Google. I don't know about everyone else, but I will be a little bit iffy about signing up for services with Google. Knowing how much they already know about me and being concerned about privacy, um, I have a feeling that they probably know me more than I, I I know myself. Now with the Barclay Amazon one, that was the one thing that was different. And you you talked about it is the lending part, right? So what they're planning to do is they're planning to link the data together and use AI to approve credit and then predict what the customers will want next. That reminds me a lot of the 310 lending model that Ant has, which is three minutes to apply for a loan, one um, one second to get the approval, and then zero customer, uh, zero human intervention. Um, I know I probably will mess this up. 
but it, it's fascinating if you if you look at how they use technology to get all these things done where in the west it will take us day if not days um, and if we can extend that similar application to a wider group of customers consumers or small businesses imagine what we can do with that um, i personally don't see that happening in the west from the banks at least not in the near or medium term if it has to be someone doing that it'll have to be the uh, the, the large tech giants uh, who got the data mic to do something like that and the technology culture to to um, um, turn something around like that uh, and uh, based on my experiences i've seen small and medium enterprises uh, trying for debt small small debt like 25000 pounds and small facilities to to for working capital uh, gaps um, they've tried it with financial services from the, the main street the high street banks and uh, they had, they couldn't even get in. They got rejected. They they they've tried it with then fintechs. Too long, six weeks, eight weeks waiting time. Even with the fintechs, and then Amazon offers them the same credit in under two days, and and money's in the bank and on by sem by, by the seventy second hour. So it's like, uh, yeah, we can do that here. I'm sure, probably not the the kind of metrics you were talking about. Three or three minutes and uh, two seconds or one second. Uh, but definitely, we could do it in a couple of days. Um, in in the West, we've got we've got organizations with the data, uh, but it also comes down to some extent to the, the the it's a cultural point from a data privacy perspective. Um, for instance, if you take China, um, Ant and Tencent, they are they've got so much information about the consumers that to so many things, so many different types of transactions with them, and there is no. Um, no real cultural barriers or regulatory barriers to nationalize that data, to then share that data with financial services partners or use it for your own financial services products. But it is not quite that in the West. So you, you basically have some stricter uh, data privacy controls in this part of the world. So you're gonna see innovation struggle to run at that pace as well. So I think there's a, there's a bit of tug of war that we need to understand that. I think one of the the other things that's kind of interesting here is is the the technology giants in the West pulling into financial services. The other thing that that came through just two days after Google announced, or one day after Google announced, was that Apple is going to take their relationship with um, Goldman Sachs and now have an online portal for what they do with the card. And I think it you know it, it enables them to build a little bit different relationship when it's not mobile only for those people that want to kind of dig into the data that's being. Um, presented and, and sort of the way that they could categorize spending and that type of thing. But but what's interesting is that, you know, of all the fintech sort of evolution in terms of user experience, in terms of the type of value props that have been added to fintech the last, you know, five to 10 years, the technology giants are coming in they're like, oh, look, you know, we, we let you aggregate and we, we give you a couple of very simple things to manage your budget. And it's kind of like they're going back 10 years ago when, when Yodely was the only aggregator and the only way that you could do something was to put a pie chart in front of someone. Um, but when I, when I think about, you know, all of these sort of large tech giants and what you just said about the difference between the East and the West, I mean, we even queue up physically different in, in Europe versus Asia versus the United States physically as we stand in line, right? And that's the way that we kind of approach privacy. But what's different, I think, about these large technology players and what banks have to offer their customers is purpose. 
right? I still wonder and question the purpose at the end of the day of why Google wants to collect financial information and why they want to be part of that. There's money to be had in the transaction, right? So the payment process is obviously a very, you know, logical place for them to try to make more money. Um, the piece of data allows them to potentially long-term advertise and profile, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. But banks at the end of the day, banks are about making money on money. And if they simply flip a, a, a dial in the executive's brains and they actually start to have feelings and empathy, then they'll think about long-term financial wellness for their businesses and consumers that they're privileged to serve. Technology giants, on the other hand, they do what they do. They're nameless, faceless pieces of data, and customers are a cog as part of that wheel. Even Apple, you know, you have to say as much as they're caring, friendly, whatever about data, they still at the end of the day have tens 10x times the amount of customers that even a city or a JP Morgan or anybody else has. So purpose and, and what at the end of the day they're doing with data is something that we have to question in these business models. I, I agree. And speaking of the big tech giants, um, look at what happened with WhatsApp, right? Uh, recently, they finally got approval to actually roll out payments, WhatsApp payments in, in India. They, now, we all know that they've been testing with a million users, I think, since, since early 2018. So it's been a long time coming. Arun, um, what do you think about in the Indian market? Um, are they going to be able to make a successful inroad with the population that they have, knowing how crowded that space is? Um. It's actually a very data intensive question to answer to you. I'll tell you why. Um, uh, if you had asked me this question about six, seven months back, I would have just gone by the number of users, WhatsApp users in India. That's the largest WhatsApp market in the world. But the usage is different um, across different parts of India in the sense, most of India, about 70% of YouTube usage, for instance, in India, happens via voice. People search using voice. Even WhatsApp, most people send messages to each other via voice on, on, on WhatsApp. Uh, there is a lot of forwarding that happens, but typing and texting is, is, uh, is, is not as normal and as common as we do in the West. So how, um, how fluent uh, WhatsApp users will be to use something like uh, a WhatsApp pay it's 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 an experiment again um, but one thing i can tell you if paytm has managed to penetrate these markets with the not kind of uh, they are definitely more clunky than a whatsapp so um yeah if if paytm have managed to penetrate uh, there's a better chance for a whatsapp to take that market uh, but there's always this uh, there's always this, uh, again, this uh, challenge or friction that's going to be there, which is the language barrier. Most users in India, they don't use it using their, um, using English or they don't message using English or, um, typing in their regional language is a pain, um, using their Android devices. Apple, Apple devices are very, very, uh, have a very small, um, uh, proportion of the market in India. So all these different, uh, data points coming together, uh, I can't tell you how how fast this is going to grow, but probably we'll know in six months' time how well they've done. Uh, it's a market that catches fire very quickly, so we'll uh, we'll know very soon. 
Yeah, I agree. And I remember we talked about that with voice too in India, Sim similar um, with China market, right? Chinese market is the prevalence of using voice as a way to communicate rather than, than typing. Just because of the nature of, of the language, it's easier to speak it. Um, and I remember we talked to Richard about this too and the podcast that he joined us for. Um, it, it's so much easier as a way to communicate. And I remember um, every time when I go to Hong Kong, I always see people talking into into the phones. They could be, you know, using voice and, the, and WhatsApp and what have you. And it's asynchronous. And, and I, always, I was always amazed. I'm like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you type? And then, you know, to your point, Irina, it makes sense because it's easier to speak into it than it is to write out a, a Chinese character. Um, and I want to go back to one of the points, uh, Brad, that you were talking about a little bit earlier with respect to big tech and data and privacy. Uh, and this literally just came out today. Um, Microsoft, they announced new steps to defend your data, so to speak. They out to challenge all government requests for customer data as a way to, to protect consumer data. And, and that's one of the things that came out, I think, earlier this year because of the differences um, or apparent lack of data protection in, in the United States versus GDPR and in the EU. So this is going to be really interesting ongoing. If you look at how Microsoft has taken steps and they are one of the, they are the first big technology firm to come out and say data privacy is important and we are going to protect the data um, going above and beyond the commitment and recommendations for EDPP. So we'll be watching that closely. And now, since um, we have a little bit of time left and we are getting close to Thanksgiving, I want to ask you guys, um, it's almost end of the year. 2020 has been anything but normal. I don't know what normal is anymore. I've been in the house for nine months. Uh, but we do have something to thankful for. I think at the end of the day, um, even though the year has been extremely chaotic and unpredictable, we have a lot to be thankful for. Um, Arun, let's start with you. It's almost end of the year. Um, I know a lot of things are a little bit different than what we expected a year ago when we recorded Thanksgiving episode. Um, what are your thoughts and reflections and what are you thankful for? Um, I'm thankful to be still alive uh, to start with. Uh, but uh, on a, on a uh, less serious note, uh, I've... Uh, uh, I've managed to finish writing my second book. Um, it's going through the final process of edit editorial work, and uh, um, and one one amazing thing that uh, I um, we've managed to do um, for the book is uh, we interviewed about fifty people for the book, uh, fifty VCs, um, CEOs, and 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 the central bankers. And the book is about crisis management for startups. Um, and uh, some of the People who have contributed, I mean, it's it's been it's been amazing. It's been amazing learning for me. Uh, it's been quite rewarding. It's been a very rewarding experience for us. Um, but the the probably the uh, the the best thing with the cherry on the cherry top, cherry on the cake was um, is 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 the endorsements that have come through um, based on um, uh, what what people have seen uh, about the book, and 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 it's 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 very very moving. And touching, so uh, that's probably the biggest thing that's happened to me in 2020. The, the best thing that's happened to me in uh, 2020. So I'm really thankful for that. 
and i am very thankful for the fact that the world is starting to look uh look at the or see the um the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccine news is, uh, news coming around and uh, yeah i really look forward to really turning the curve uh by by the time we get into 2021 i i think that um all of us, you know, directly or indirectly have been affected by this virus. And I was talking to a friend that I had worked with for years and told me that his um, partner's father had passed away from COVID. Uh, he was in his mid eighties. And, you know, I, I, I get those stories now and then from family members that have been impacted. Lots of people, um, I think that we've known uh, around the world have gotten sick. But it's it's very I think less rare that we personally have heard someone um, passing away, and so you know we have to be thankful for our health, and I think we have to be thankful for the lessons of community and the examples of humanity that we've seen this past year. And you know, with with these election results um, over the last two weeks, I think that we're hopeful um, that things can return to a sense of civility uh, in this country, especially. And you know, I I, I would second. Um, what you said, Arun, about the the writing that we've been able to accomplish during the pandemic, and with Theo and I talked about that in last week's episode about the creation of Beyond Good, and where a year ago, you know, we were at the beginning of that process and could have never imagined um, not having, you know, travel and not having a focus on some of the other things that in the last couple of years we've been focused on in terms of the work for conferences and, and other places, and you know. I, I just I'm, I'm thankful that we continue to iterate and innovate and make this industry better, uh, and just you know just very thankful that that we can continue to do what we do. And I second both of you guys, um, despite a lot of the challenges that we always talk about, you know, having to manage our work life and our kiddos life and trying to navigate between the two and is mentally and physically exhausting. Um, despite the fact that we have completely changed the way that we work and how we work, right? We have been to a lot of virtual conferences, a lot of, um, video calls with clients. And, um, it's very odd that Arun has been a year since I'm, we last met in London. Um, and same to you, Brad. I mean, I think that was the last time we all traveled together. This is very odd, but we're thankful to still be here alive and healthy, um, to still have the privilege to talk to everyone. Um, and despite the chaos, um, Arun is expecting his new book, Restartup, coming out in January next year. And despite the challenges, Brad and I will have our first book together, Beyond Good, coming out March next year. Um, and here's hope for the best. Thankful for our tribes and for our listeners and our friends and everybody. And let's keep the hope, Brad. I'm channeling your daily um, tweets about the need to keep up the hope and hope for a better future, a better tomorrow. And know that all of us, have a role to play. And so let's make tomorrow better for everybody. And for that, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. Happy Thanksgiving to our friends in the United States. 
and have a wonderful week, everybody.